Hello and welcome to the Inside Dish, where we explore the culinary, distillery, and the winery arts in and around the Lehigh Valley. I'm Mike Dravenstadt, host for your gastronomic tour of the region's amazing food and beverage scene. I'm here with Jason Hoy, who is co-owner of Cabinet Wine Bar and Dining with his wife, uh, Melanie Hanchi, in the 100 block of Northampton Street in Easton. Jason, welcome to the Inside Dish. Hi, thanks for having me. And I should say welcome back because you were the former proprietor of, uh, of Tucker Silk Mill, right? Well, that's correct, yes. Okay. And then what happened to Tucker and how that uh, evolved into something new? Um, Tucker is still happening. So, so we're actually uh, busy building Tucker out uh, behind our current restaurant. Um, Tucker Garage and Grocery will be reborn later in the year. And how will that be different than what people might have known with uh, Tucker before? Or will it be the same? More of the same, maybe. It'd be a better way to put it. So it, it's, a, it's going to be more of the large grocery store selling um, all the things you might need. Fresh produce, fresh vegetables, conservers, pastas, but on a, a larger scale. We'll also have a wine store in there and we'll also have that cafe. So very large old bus depot that we're going into that we're already a part of with our current restaurant. Excellent. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, Cabinet, which mm-hmm. uh, for our, our listeners here is spelled with a K and two T's at the end. Uh, what's the origin of the word and why was it appropriate? for this restaurant? Um, yeah, so cabinet is, um, it's a German word. Uh, it's a German word that, um, if I was to be very simple, breaks it down to a style of Riesling. Um, uh, the Germans used to measure their wines based on sugar levels, cabinet, Ausschlesse, uh, and so on and so forth. But cabinet was a word where you put the good things away. If it was a really good bottle of wine, they stuck it in the cabinet and they'd pull it out and say, hey, this is really good, check it out. So it's multi-layered. My wife is German and Australian. I'm a Riesling specialist and have been for many decades. Um, uh, it's been the working name for, I don't know, almost 20 years in the background. We tried so many different names, but that's always been the one that bobbed to the surface. It's easy to say. It, um, it pays a little a nod to that um, Pennsylvania Deutsch as well, we think. So we just felt that it was a, a good fit. And you did mention your uh, your background. You have a background in wine and your wife with food, correct? Yeah. So I've spent 30 years in the wine trade. Uh, I was lucky enough to run one of the best wine stores in Australia for a decade and travel the world. Uh, I was also lucky enough to be involved in Riesling and um, run with some really amazing wine portfolios in Australia. I ran the summer of Riesling for six years in the Southern Hemisphere. And my wife is the deputy editor at Food and Wine magazine. And she's been involved in Food magazine. She, we, we are here because of Maria Rodale and the Rodale Publishing Company, where she was um, editor-in-chief of Organic Life and was the director of food content for quite a few years. So with your respective backgrounds in both uh, wine and then food, um, and then operating Tucker and things like that. How did that all kind of come together and manifest in, in Cabinet? And what were you hoping to accomplish with its opening? Yeah, um, I'm, I think, uh, wow, when I was 22, and I don't want to give my age away, but you know, <laughs> almost 30 years uh, ago, I announced I was going to open a wine bar to my friends. Um, it was like 6 a.m. after a big shift in a nightclub that we'd been working behind the bar. But but I was also running wine stores, and I'd been doing it since I was 17. So it's a culmination, and I think it's something we couldn't have done without that huge run-up. Um, if I'd tried to open a wine bar 10 years ago, I don't think it would have been anywhere near um, what we've created. The, the culmination of uh, being able to travel with my wife, um, see some of the great restaurants around the world, um, to live in different countries, to really kind of like build our knowledge base and have a good idea of what makes a great restaurant to take in every detail, go somewhere fantastic and say, what do I like about this place? What don't I like about this place? So we have some really strong ideas. By the time it came to building out cabinet, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. So it was this idea from, again, 30 years ago that kind of stayed in the back of your mind. 
And you've been doing all the research in the meantime, right. but yep. you needed to pay off that kind of bet, right? That's exactly <laughs> right. I mean, I've had my uh, the wine glasses you're drinking out of um, when you come to Cabinet, I've had them for a decade stashed away in a garage and then we shipped them to the USA because we wanted nice wine glasses. I was, my best mate worked for a large uh, wine glass distributor. And so whenever they had a flash sale, I'd be like, right, let's stick some more in the garage. (laughs) So yeah, we've been building slowly towards that. And a lot of the things we have, we've had for a long time or we've had in the background waiting to put into the space. We're going to talk about the food in a second. Let's start with the the wine, uh, about the, the wine list and how you develop a wine list like that. Again, with your background, kind of knowing the Lehigh Valley, whether the, the wine list is a reflection of Valley, a reflection of your passions. I mean, kind of what's what's driving it? What's the motivation behind that Look, list? I would love to say the wine list is a reflection of Valley, but it's not. The hardest thing about moving to Pennsylvania is a state-controlled system of liquor, and that really means a limited choice of wines. So I find as, as a wine guy that's loved wine and restaurants and wine lists, it was very tough moving to Pennsylvania. But the second part is it's an extension of that is that we – have distilled down um, 30 years worth of wine experience and knowledge. And I feel that we're not gaming the system, but we have the ability to run through a list of 40, 50,000 wines that are available to restaurateurs and know without tasting them what stands out, what works well. And so it's more about saying, here's 50,000 choices. Can you make 200 out of that? Um, And being able to do that. My job for many years was walking into a private cellar and very quickly assessing what was in there, what was good, what was not, how it was aging, if it was a good year, a bad year. All those things kind of come into that building, that, that sort of set of knowledge that's helped us build a wine list very quickly. The other part of it is really get sad going into a restaurant that has a bad wine list. And we're also the, the definition of a wine bar is often maybe only 10 wines and, you know, some cheese plates. Whereas my idea of a wine bar is a little temple to wine, but we also believe that it should come with great food as well. So, And let's, uh, before we get into that food, mm. uh, with the wine list, how would you ask your guests to approach the wine list and peruse it and interact with either yourself or their server in terms of selecting a wine or learning a little bit more about the wines? Absolutely. So the answer there is the other hard part about wine lists for me is there's never any information. There's never um, anything more than just a list. So you're expected to go in and sit down and look at a list of names, like opening a phone book, and you don't know anything about the people in the phone book apart from their name and number. So um, our wine list is 37 pages long at the moment, but every single wine has a description, what the grape variety is, what it tastes like, um, what it might match with. So we ask people to not be terrified of such a huge book because it's there to help them rather than hinder them. Um, we're not going to browbeat people in our servers. We, we don't call them servers. We just have a team. But our team essentially are just there to guide them or give them some suggestions and, and make them feel confident in their choices. They can ask for help or they can be confident in reading the wine list and know they can find answers without having to ask anyone and be embarrassed by it. Beautiful. I love it. I love it. Let's talk about the food. Sure. Uh, how is the menu conceived? Is there a thread that kind of runs through it? Uh, you know, Talk about, I guess, your, your team approach and kind of what you're looking to accomplish with the food. Right. So I think there are two components to our food, uh, the people, definitely. And the, the first people are uh, Jacob Watson and Paige Robinson, our two head chefs. So we don't have a head chef. We have two head chefs. Um, they happen to be partners. They have lots of experience. Both of them have worked at Belit for some time. They've gone down to Zahav in Philly. They, they're young and they're passionate. And they've been in the valley cooking menus that don't change for a long time. So I think they're really excited to be able to take new directions and experiment and emulate some of their hero chefs and, and, and really start to put their own touch on it. The second is 
I have an amazing wife who has this amazing food knowledge as well. She was a judge on the finale of Top Chef a couple of years ago alongside Padma Lakshmi and she does this for a living so she can sit down and have a very disarming conversation about a dish and suggest tweaks or you know changes in the flavor profile or hey put less salt in that even to get basic but it means that um, when they come up with an idea she can very quickly hand them uh, a large amount of iterations of that dish and we can help develop that dish and let them run with it but also help them really make it shine so that's the first part. The second part is where is the food from? That's very hard to say. As Australians, we have huge exposure to Asian flavors. Um, as a German wife, we like our European food, but we also have to realize that we're living in the USA and, and there's a different palate. So it's a blend of all of those things. A lot of people are terrified of the menu. A lot of people have not come to our restaurant because they say to me um, up front, well, it's a little different. It's not what I would normally eat. On the flip side, um, when people do come to join us for dinner, they they have to be adventurous. They have to order a thing. They're not sure what it is, whether it's tempura battered maitake mushrooms or it's a, a steak tartare with, you know, very Southeast Asian flavors. But by the time they've started a couple of things, they're already making reservations for their next visit and they're telling their friends about it and they're getting very excited. So it's more about... Uh, taking a bit of a trust fall with us. But I know that can be hard for a lot of people. So, And let's talk about some of the other things on the menu, maybe some things mm. recently that uh, were really big winners in your mind and maybe in your guest's mind, some of the other items. Sure. I mean, so we, um, for instance, we have a duck schnitzel. So we don't have a traditional schnitzel on our um, menu. We have a duck schnitzel and we change the set that goes alongside it. But it's just done so beautifully. It's it's one of those great things where everyone says, oh, wow, that's amazing. Um, it's, it's not super complicated. It's just super delicious. Um, but we also do things like desserts, like a, a thing called a bee sting, or in German, a bienenstick, um, which is our riff on a very simple cake, a little sponge cake with like a custard in the middle and some almonds and icing sugar on the top that you'd buy at a typical German bakery. But with every month we do a wine dinner, we develop a whole new menu for those wine dinners. And that was one of the dishes. And it's a beautiful sponge soaked in like a honey liqueur. There's that sort of cream custard f uh, middle. There's honeycomb, a special kind of toffee that you'll find in Australia and the UK that goes alongside it and it's decadent but people don't know what it is when they try it and they um they lose their minds it's our number one selling dish and that's a very german thing with a, a beautiful twist from our two american chefs yeah well i'd say yeah. you maybe have to be a touch adventurous but i've never seen anything on the menu that i'd characterize as kind of bizarre or otherworldly you'd be surprised some people yeah. just don't eat vegetables in the middle of our, our <laughs> menu is vegetable heavy um and a, and a lot of people want to see a chicken or a burger or a steak on the menu. So, you know, we put a steak on the menu for the first time in the seven months we've been open uh, last weekend. So coming up to Father's Day, just as a safe bet. Um, so, yeah, I think we have to look for uh, one of my um, team members, uh, Caitlin. She's fabulous. She says, we need a dad hit. And I think that's a really wonderful concept. Like you have, have to have a dish on that menu so that the adventurous family comes in with their kids that are eating all sorts of stuff. But then dad's in a safe space as well. I can say, yeah, yeah I'll, have, I'll have the duck schnitzel, thanks. So it's really important. And we're learning that as we go. And then just really quickly, I saw on the menu, there's a, an item on there where you can buy fresh produce for someone for $15. What's that about? Um, so um, this, this really goes back to Tucker. In the middle of the pandemic, we closed the cafe a week before the lockdown and announced that we would be a, a grocery store. And we very quickly went from cooking produce to selling produce. And, and then we started selling eggs. There was this strange situation where an egg farm was being shut down. And there was a point where we were selling 7,000 dozen eggs a week. 
but we weren't really selling them. We were making money. We were just helping the farm from closing down. Um, but then we realized that people would just say, look, just give them to someone who needs them. The pandemic was a strange point in time where people didn't know how to help. And we said, you can help. So we offered produce bag. They could buy some produce to someone else. And we became the second largest provider of food in Easton um, in the pandemic after Second Harvest. So that's something we sort of carry on. We feel that we should be involved, but also people are not given a conduit to how to give or how to help. So we were packing a thousand pounds of produce a week for Paxanosa Elementary um, before we closed Tucker down. And so we intend to do that again. So in the background, yeah, we sort of put that money aside and then we'll look at ways that we can distribute that and make sure that we go straight to local charities and and get fresh produce into the hands of people in our town and the surrounding area as well. I also noticed on on the menu that at the bottom, there's a uh, 20% gratuity added to the final bill. And that's not necessarily to, to line the owner's pockets. There is, seems like there's a more altruistic thing in terms of people throughout the restaurant earning a living wage. Right. Well, there's two things. Um, we come from a place where tips aren't a thing. Um, so the minimum wage in Australia just got raised to $23.23 an hour. Um, and it went up from $22 an hour last year, 12 months ago. Whereas the minimum wage here in Pennsylvania is $7.25. And a lot of restaurants in the Valley will then garnish that down to $2.50. And even though they're not supposed to, down to nothing and say, well, you're getting tips. We pay our staff $20 an hour, plus um, we pull tips, plus health insurance for our full-time staff. So the 20% gratuity is a system that's been here. It's, it's You're expected to tip in a restaurant. And if people are expected to tip, then we kind of feel that like, hey, you're expected to tip. This is how we do it. So that means that our staff that are on $20 an hour, they, um, with a tip, they they do well. They, they can enter this as a career. They are not just someone looking to fill a gap on the way to another job. It's a real job and it's a career choice that they have chosen to make. It's not just valuing the food that we make, but it's valuing the people we make as well. So we've had very little pushback because people are expected to leave a tip unless something terribly wrong happens and then they can tell us about it and we'll make sure to fix it. But we want our staff to be able to pay their rent and to um, clear their student debts and all those kind of things just as easily as somebody else who is working in maybe the corporate sector or, you know, in nursing. And that's a terrible example because nurses are t- pay terribly as well. Right. But, um, but yeah, we want them to have a life where they're not living from paycheck to paycheck, but where they can save some money, where they can um, do things. So our, our chefs, for instance, just put a deposit down in a house and moved in. And that's a really wonderful thing to see that they, as a, as a couple, have enough money coming in that they can talk to a bank and say, yeah, we have a job that has a real income rather than just tips. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, that certainly uh, makes a lot of sense to me, uh, having been involved in the business and knowing people. Are there other things in the restaurant business here in the States that you think is overdue for a change? Ooh, um, that's, I could get myself into trouble. I don't think so. Um, <laughs> I think that um, it's great to see food safety and a lot of laws like that. But I also feel that there's a large industrial complex that doesn't help us. For instance, eggs have to be washed here, which gives them a, a very, very short shelf life and they have to be refrigerated. Where um, you can get a, a carton of eggs, say in, in uh, Germany, where my wife's from, and it just sits on the kitchen side. It hasn't been washed. They have a natural protection and they tend to sort of like be good for a month on the kitchen counter. So I think sometimes it goes a little too far. And I think that also means we have to say some really funny things on the menu. For instance, that, that obligatory warning about raw seafood and shellfish, you know, can cause this. And we lead in with that just by saying, you know, trying new things can be scary. Um, We try and make light of it, but we have to have it there. So yeah, we get used to that and we work with it. 
Awesome. And then one final follow-up question, uh, certainly with your background in wine and your wife's on food and owning restaurants and bringing very knowledgeable people, how do you find that collaboration between the owners of a restaurant and the creative people? Not that you aren't creative, but you know the chefs who have their own ideas and their own, they bring a lot to the table. Talk a little bit about that balance, the, the give, the take, the, the push, the pull of all that. Absolutely. I think we've learned. I think without Tucker, we wouldn't have learned how to do this. And I think we're doing it okay. I'm not going to say anyone's perfect. Um, no one is. But I think it's about trying to get rid of ego. Um, so so being able to talk to a, a head chef and say, hey, this isn't good um, or this is great and have them not burst into tears and you know, sort of say, you don't understand my genius. But on the other side, it's also about not um, browbeating someone and saying, well, I know better because I'm older than you. And so we really need to try and, and communicate. And often the times we trip up is when we haven't communicated what we wanted to do on either side, where we see something hit a plate and think, well, that's not what I expected, where we probably should have been more clear with each other or just taken the time. And I think we're taking the time and making sure and we're testing dishes we're not just putting a dish on the menu we're testing it tasting it analyzing it talking about it testing it again so our menu changes constantly every couple of weeks um, there's a new item on the menu at, at minimum so yeah it's about being able to evolve change test and, and and communicate with our staff and our team and ourselves jason how can people find you online cabinetwinebar.com with a k and a double t and social media too some um, social media i think it's cabinet.winebar but um yeah instagram facebook um we're, we're there yeah jason thanks for joining us here at wdiy it's been a pleasure i'm mike dravenstadt and this is the inside dish If you enjoyed this program, please go to WDIY.org or the WDIY app to share or become a WDIY member.